In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've heard the story before, probably, although I, I don't remember my homilies from year to year, so maybe you'll hear it again uh, as though it were brand new, but I'll never tire telling the story. He was the, really the first soul that I accompanied to death at my first parish, uh, visiting him frequently. And he had already been very close because his son-in-law was received into the church at my very first Easter vigil. Um, a gentle old man. It was almost a surprise to hear that he had been uh, a spook. So he was an old retired spy. Spent his, his retirement refinishing antique furniture and playing poker with his old retired spook friends. I have a little uh, refinished cupboard drawer uh, that's on my desk. It serves as a pen and pencil holder. As he was uh, preparing well for death, not enjoying the dying process, but um, loving everyone at every opportunity, it was, it was quite easy to visit him. And so I had full access privileges. I, I would just walk in the front door. I didn't knock or ring the doorbell. And so towards the end, one morning I came in the front door and crossed through the family room to the dining room, which had been turned into a hospital room. The dining room table had been removed. His hospital bed was there. And as I came in, without even saying anything, his wife and one of his adult children knew that they could uh, exit. I think someone had probably brought lunch, and lunch was waiting for them in the kitchen. So they started to make their way quietly to the, to the kitchen, thinking that he was asleep. And I came in, and when I came to his side, he, he opened his eyes, and he looks up to the, to the ceiling, and he, he emits this loud groan. I love you so much. Well, his wife was almost through the, through the swinging door to the kitchen. She heard him say something, didn't hear what he said. So she turns around, and, and I told her, he just said, I love you so much. So she comes right to his side and plants a kiss on his cheek and whispers to him, I love you too, honey. Now, this man couldn't move a muscle. He's just, he's just stiff, and he's, his eyes are still up, looking at the ceiling, and he says, I was talking to God. <laughs> You'll hear that next year, probably, so look forward to it already. How much, how much do we love God? Don't be fooled by the subdued way in which we read sacred scriptures properly during Mass. Because we are not the audience, we're not the principal audience at Mass. Remember, God is the principal audience in the sense of he is the principal recipient of these words. We aren't. We present ourselves to Christ, our priest, and he gathers us together into his body and brings us up to God the Father. So God is the audience. What we're doing is we are making present the word of God to make more rich our worship of God. 
sacred scriptures are read here at, at Mass not principally for our instruction. It's assumed that you have already read these and studied them and you are familiar with them. It does not assume that this is the first time that you hear this and now all of a sudden you need to hear it explained. Because this is not principally a classroom. This is a sanctuary where we worship God. Nevertheless, God orders this worship of him such that we, we do benefit from it and we do learn from it. That's not exclusive to what's going on here. I say that because when sacred scripture is read, it's not a dramatic reading. It's not for the sake of capturing your attention and, and exposing you to something you've never heard before. Rather, no, we're returning to this meditation. This is the sacred scripture with which we should already be so familiar. We hear these words in a cycle. By the time we're done, we'll have heard these dozens and dozens of times. Think of how the sacred scripture is chanted at the beginning of Mass or at the communion. That antiphon is lifted up in prayer for, for the worship and glory of God and for our edification, for our sanctification. I say all that so that you're not allowing these words to just slip by as though they're familiar and calm and are even normal. Listen to these words of our Lord one more time and think about how he must have said them or the ways in which they must have been uttered. I have come to set the earth on fire. Now, do you think for a second that he said it simply like that? By the way, I've come to set the earth on fire. Did you know that? I can imagine two different ways, two very different ways, but but fitting. I can imagine him saying it very quietly with great intensity. I have come to set the world on fire. I can also hear him just shouting it. There is an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. It probably shows up in your missalette, probably in your Bible translation at home. Not too many exclamation marks, but there are quite a few in the Gospels. I have come to set the world on fire. On fire with the love of God. And when we are set on fire with the love of God, there will inevitably be conflict. Because there will be those who love God and those who don't. There will be those who love God above all else and those who do not. The conflict between father and son, mother and daughter, it's not for its own sake. It's because there will be those who will realize my identity is not my family. My identity is God. My identity is not my alma mater. It is not my nationality or my passport. It is my relationship with God. Belonging to the church is not just simply a flag I wave, something that's convenient, something that's a matter of my cultural heritage. It is my firm participation in the church that Christ founded, which is the only certain way of getting to heaven. When hearts are set on fire with love of God, 
and devotion and loyalty to him through the sacramental union of the body of Christ, there will inevitably be conflict and division. It will come naturally. We do not have to seek it out. It might have been in a previous generation or maybe even currently, depending on what kids know about their parents' way of life, that as kids are being raised, as children are being instructed and governed, yes, you can do that. No, you may not do that. Yes, you can watch that. No, you may not watch that. Yes, you can go there. No, you may not go there. It sounds as though children just bear this burden of all this, all these rules and all, all the constraints and all the things we can't do because of our religion. Little do they know how much mom and dad are suffering at work, how much they know how many career opportunities are not theirs anymore, what ridicule they endure in the office, or even in the grocery store where people make snide comments about how many children you've produced. I do suggest that it is part of parents' duties to deflect and filter worry and anxiety from their children. It is your duty to absorb that as much as possible so that kids don't know about mom and dad's struggles. But I do suggest that in the same way that seminarians must be instructed about all the struggles and pitfalls that will face them in their vocation, that it is actually appropriate to tell your children about what it's like to be a Catholic at work or at the country club or at the grocery store or on the job market. It is totally appropriate for children to understand already that mom and dad are suffering and making great sacrifices, not just sons and daughters. We intuit it. We know that our relatives don't quite practice the faith the way we do. My parents were converts, so my extended relatives thought we were just the strangest birds on the planet. Always going to Sunday Mass super early so as not, not to inconvenience grandparents. And if that wasn't enough, one son goes into the seminary. And if they needed more proof that we were brainwashed, another son goes into the seminary. That's different from complaining to your kids about the incompetence of your boss. That's different. But explaining to your children how, how the workplace has become increasingly hostile, not just to Catholicism and Christianity, but even just common sense and decency. And then the difficult decisions and the sacrifices they'll have to make at school or for their sports teams will seem just simply part of what we do as a family, hopefully. Because they'll see that you do it without complaint. Why? Because you love God. Because he came to set the world on fire. I happen to be an expert at fire. And... The fathers of the church, especially St. Ambrose and Tertullian and others, they comment that 
This fire is the kind of fire that separates and purifies. This isn't a consuming fire that destroys everything. You might be interested to know the forging temperature of stainless steel is 2,000 degrees. Which is not even as hot as a charcoal fire. We prayed at the beginning of Mass to be filled with the warmth of God's love. To love him above all else so that we can attain his promises which surpass all human desire. This is the fire that gives life. It's also the fire that removes everything that is trash. This is the fire of prayer, the fire of sacrifice, the fire of mortification, the fire of penance, the fire of worshiping God. And how he wished it were already blazing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.